Second Samuel chapter 9, you've got Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, and then you come to the Samuels, and we're in Second Samuel 9. And while you find that, I'll tell you that uh, things have settled down very well for King David. Uh, the kingdom is established. Uh, at the end of chapter 8, we have his cabinet, uh, secretary of the press, and uh, everything's, you know, the, the carpet in the Oval Office has been torn out uh, and burned. And uh, uh, the, the whole administration is in place. The kingdom is stable, and, uh, and uh, David the king is uh, very well established. And so we pick it up in uh, chapter 9, verse 1. And God, God's word reads this way. David asked, is there anyone still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of Saul's household named Ziba. They called him to appear before David, David, and the king said to him, Are you Ziba, your servant, he replied. The king asked, Is there no one still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show God's kindness? Ziba answered the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in both feet. Where is he? The king asked. Ziba answered, He is at the house of Maker, son of Amiel, in Lodibar. So King David had him brought from Lodibar, from the house of Maker, son of Amiel. When Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David, he bowed down to him to pay him honor. David said, Mephibosheth, your servant, he replied. Don't be afraid, David said to him, for I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather Saul, and you will always eat at my table. Mephibosheth bowed down and said, What is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? Then the king summoned Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, I have given your master's grandson everything that belonged to Saul and his family. You and your sons and your servants are to farm the land for him and bring in the crops so that your master's grandson may be provided for. And Mephibosheth, grandson of your master, will always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, Your servant will do whatever my lord the king commands his servant to do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. Mephibosheth had a son, young son named Micah, and all the members, members of Ziba's household were servants of Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem because he always ate at the king's table and he was crippled in both feet. May we pray again. Father, may the truth be spoken and received here today. In Jesus' name, amen. I think it was, uh, <clears throat> it was either last spring or the spring before uh, I was coming to work and uh, I parked in the parking lot and I was walking across the church parking lot and I uh, noticed that it had it rained the previous night. And you know what, happened, what happens when it rains? You know, the water kind of covers the pavement and there are little puddles here and there and the earthworms get all excited because they, they kind of come out of the grass and they, 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 they look out at the hot, you know, the asphalt and they think, well, I've heard about these places, but I've never ventured out, and they, but it's wet. And so they make their way out, and, uh, and it's great. You know, it's comfortable, it's wet, it's moist, they have all this stuff for life, and then the sun comes out. And it starts drying the pavement, 
The worm doesn't really know or care because he's in this little puddle, but as the sun heats up, the puddle lessens and lessens, and pretty soon that worm finds himself absolutely trapped, uh, far away from that source of life and uh, with no way to get there, and uh, they, you know, bake and dry out and die. Well, I, uh, I walked out there, and I was walking across the street, and I saw this, this worm out there, and uh, I had pity on it. And uh, I thought, well, this is a shame, you know, in about uh, 15 minutes, this thing's going to be totally without water, and then in an hour, it'll be dead. And so uh, I thought, well, you know, I'm a wonderful person. And uh, so I, I reached down, and I, I got real close to it, and as soon as I touched it, that worm went, just started writhing, just, you know, angrily, you know. Who do you think you are? You know, I control my own destiny. I'm the captain of my fate. I don't want anybody, ma no government. You know, I just it did not want me to intervene in any way. And I thought, well, you know, here I am uh, in my graciousness trying to assist this worm, and it is fighting me. And so I stepped on it and killed it. But no, I didn't. I, didn't. I did not. <clears throat> I did not do that. <laughs> I, I, I picked him up in spite of himself, and I walked him over to some nice wet mulch, and I made a little place, put him in there, and, uh, and I think he's, uh, you know, sired many uh, worms since then. But I think... Um, <laughs> My point, of course, is that, uh, you know, the, the worm wasn't, uh, the worm wasn't uh, touting its uh, qualities to me and, and uh, making itself uh, more and more lovely to me that I might uh, kneel and say, well, I found something of value here. It was only pity. It was only, it was only grace that stooped to rescue this poor thing that was, that was writhing, that indeed demonstrated to me that I was its enemy. <laughs> well, the story of this... Uh, the point of the story of Mephibosheth is very much like this. It's a sublime and wonderful story. It's one of my favorite things in the whole Bible. And, of course, the real comparison is to be made. You know, Mephibosheth has this earthly savior, King David, that sees this cripple, and he, and he goes out and, and seeks him out and rescues him. Of course, the parallel is our wonderful and loving God that saw something that was an enemy and something that uh, was hopeless and utterly doomed and God rescued anyway. And that's the, the wonderful thing that we see in this story. I want to rewind just a little bit and, uh, and recall what took place in, uh, in David's earlier life and his dealings with King Saul. If you think that uh, Newman and Jerry were adversaries, uh, you know, Saul uh, was, uh, you know, he said, you know, I'm a little troubled here. I'd like David to come on in and, and play the uh, harp for me. So David comes in and plays a stringed instrument and uh, Saul uh, gets a, you know, he he's, gets a little, had a bad burrito or something and he chunks a spear at David and tries to kill him. And then he does it again. And he, and he sends armies after David to kill David. Uh, he, he has this hatred for David. Uh, you know, this, uh, you know he, he sends uh, David out to, uh, to fight, and David kills all these Philistines, the bad guys. And uh, there's a new song on the radio. David, uh, Saul has killed his thousands. They're singing this all over the place. Saul has killed his thousands. David his tens of thousands. You know, that's pretty good. You think, you know, Saul's in there, he's killed his thousands, that's good. And of course, you know, Saul's a, he's a delegator. And he finds this young pupil that makes the coach look good. He sends David out, David kills tens of thousands. Saul must be a great uh, administrator. Uh, but no, Saul is terribly, terribly jealous. He wants David dead more and more. And so he doesn't like this song that's being sung all over the land. Uh, David, his tens of thousands outdoing him. And so David, uh, having been pursued over and over, is constantly fleeing for his life. Okay, but here we are now, things are totally different. Uh, Saul is dead. He fell on his own sword. He's gone. His sons are dead. 
and uh, David is ruling. He's upon his throne. His enemies are subdued. His kingdom is firmly in place. And what is customary for a king to do when their kingdom is being established and, and, and running? What do they usually do? Well, they go kill anybody that could usurp them. I mean, they go seek out the relatives, even distant ones. Even kings would be put in place and kill their own brothers because they did not want some kind of coup to try and overtake them. That's the normal custom of a king that's put in place. Uh, but instead, in chapter 9, verse 1, David asked, Is there anyone still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Well, the first observation we can make uh, very easily is, who was it that took the initiative? If this is a, if this is a beautiful, sublime portrait of what is grace, who was it that took the initiative? It was David. Uh, Mephibosheth wasn't, uh, you know, on, on the web, uh, you know, typing in King David's name and trying to contact him and saying, you know, I really would like uh, my grandfather's land back. And, uh, you know, maybe you, you could show some kindness. You remember Jonathan? Remember you made this little deal with Jonathan, uh, my dad? Could you show kindness to me? There's none of that. And so it's like that with true grace as well. If you would keep your finger there and turn to uh, Isaiah 53. Uh, find the Psalms and go right. Isaiah 53. Uh, verse 4. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. You know, we're wandering sheep. There's a people who are wandering sheep far away. And who is it that does the searching? It's the shepherd who goes out and searches. Um, I, our brother and sister-in-law, uh, when they travel, we watch their dog and we trade dogs and help each other out. And they've got this little dog named Charlie who's a, a peppy little uh, thing. And... Uh, Somehow he uh, got out uh, of our house and got lost. And that's horrible when they're far away and you're responsible for this little uh, mongrel and you need to take care of him and all that, and he's gone. And so uh, what happens, you know? I mean, I run out in the yard and I go, Charlie! Charlie! And uh, my lesbian next-door neighbors come out and they hear this plea for help and they realize this man is in trouble. And so the lesbian neighbors and, and I scour the neighborhood. And I have to say, to their credit, they found the dog and helped me out tremendously. And they saved the day. All I have to say, you know, when we, when we found that dog, he was just, just loving life, you know, and cars are whizzing by. And, and, uh, but we're in this panic because we're, we're hotly pursuing this little dog. Who does the pursuing? <laughs> in rescues. It's the rescuer. You know, uh, oh, uh, 
let, let me get there real quick. This is in, in Romans, if you're, if you're really fast. I'm already there. As it is written, there is, this is Romans 3, 10. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. And the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And of course, verse 23, that same chapter says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You know, who sought out Abram, a pagan, an idol worshiper in the land of Ur of the Chaldees? Who was it? You know, he wasn't out there looking for Jehovah. God sought him out. Who sought out Moses? Was Moses out there hoping to find some burning bush and get some, uh, you know, decree? No. Who sought out whom? Saul of Tarsus. Who sought out him? I can promise you that he did not. He was not seeking Jesus. <laughs> on the road to Damascus when he was stricken down and blinded and commanded and appointed and commissioned. Neither was Mephibosheth seeking out a king or a rescuer and neither were you or me. I. We weren't looking for a savior. We were like that worm, trapped and hopeless and helpless and God rescued anyway. Second observation I can make is that the name Mephibosheth means dispeller of shame or a shameful thing. You know, we have fallen short of the glory of God, to be sure. And uh, I, uh, I quote um, Ephesians 4 to you. Just listen. Um, they are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. I mean, that is a shameful portrayal of the fallen condition. That's the human condition, the fallen condition, the shameful condition. And in the case of Mephibosheth and us, we are fitly removed from the presence of a king. It, it, uh, it's only fair it's only just that we be jettisoned from God's holy presence. You know, when people say, uh, uh, is there anything that God can't do? Of course he can't do some things. Can he make a rock so big that only he can't move it? Of course he can't. He's, he's only limited by his own nature. Can God lie? No. Can God sin? No. Can God let sin go unpunished? He cannot let sin go unpunished by his very nature. He cannot do it. He is limited only by his own nature. He must punish sin. Justice must be served. And is that not a comfort when you watch court TV and you see things on TV and you just go, ah, I can't believe justice is not served. Friends, it will be. It is in the courts of heaven. You know why? It must be so. God in his holiness must judge sin. If you ever doubt that, look at the cross and look at the atrocity of it. That penalty paid for you and me. Well, another intriguing thing is this. Mephibosheth is crippled. Now, 
I, I just love how it is just it, it's it's so matter-of-factly stated um, Saul says is there anyone to whom I can show uh, God's kindness and Ziba answers the king he says uh, in verse 3 of uh, 2 Sam 9 there is still a son of Jonathan he is crippled in both feet I mean it's not politically correct but listen the guy's a cripple king and uh, it's mentioned a couple other times in fact the very end of the passage uh, <laughs> Verse 13, Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem because he always ate at the king's table. Don't forget, by the way, cripple, cripple in both feet, you know, don't forget. It's just such a poignant thing that it's even mentioned at the very end. Remember, he's crippled, you know, not necessarily the perfect physical specimen. How did it get that way? Well, if you flip back just a few chapters, chapter 4, you'll see. Uh, chapter 4, verse 4. Jonathan, son of Saul, had a son, here we go again, who was lame in both feet. How did it happen? He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan, dead, came from Jezreel. His nurse picked him up and fled, but as she hurried to leave, he fell, became crippled. His name was Mephibosheth. Now, I don't want to uh, wrangle the scripture in any way or put meaning in there that doesn't belong, but I do think it's at least an interesting point that the scripture uh, makes a point to say that he fell and became crippled. It doesn't say, you know, it says the nurse picked him up, but, you know, he fell. It doesn't say she dropped him. It doesn't say she said, you know, there he went. Uh, he fell and became crippled. And like I say, I don't want to I don't want to misuse this at all, but I, I think it's at least interesting that we've fallen too, you know. <laughs> we've had a fall, and we're crippled, and we're in great need too, and that it's specifically uh, stated about how this happened. The main thing that I want to point out to you, though, tonight is uh, the motive of, uh, which uh, actuated David, the motive behind this whole uh, rescue mission. Why did he seek out the lone relative of Saul? Why is he doing it? Is he bored? Uh, is he just sitting around? He doesn't have anything to do, not, not hardly. He does it for a specific reason. If you would all turn uh, to 1 Samuel, chapter 20. First Samuel, chapter 20. <clears throat> let's, look, let's look at the verse um, oh, 12. By the way, uh, to set this up, you know that uh, David knows that Saul's trying to kill him. And uh, David's buddies with Saul's kid, Jonathan. They're, they're best friends. And uh, David's, uh, David says, Jonathan, I think your dad wants to kill me. And Jonathan says, no way. There's no way he's trying to kill you. And Jonathan, uh, David says, I'm sure of it. And so they devise this little plan. You know the thing with the arrow where David, he's not at dinner one night. And Saul thinks, well, you know, he's probably ceremonially unclean. He's not at dinner another night, and he says, uh, <clears throat> Jonathan, uh, where's uh, your buddy tonight? Uh, two nights in a row, he's not at the king's table. What's the deal? And uh, Jonathan says, well, I gave him the night off to go to Bethlehem, and Saul flies into a rage. And uh, Jonathan knows that, indeed, Saul wants to kill David. And so they, they plan this little thing where they shoot an arrow, and uh, Jonathan says, yoo-hoo, uh, Aaron boy, the arrow's beyond you. And, and they have this little signal set up, so David knows, indeed, Saul wants to kill him. Well, here they are making this little, uh, this little compact. And uh, in verse 12, it says this. Jonathan said to David, By the Lord, 
the God of Israel, I will surely sound out my father by this time the day after tomorrow. If he's favorably disposed toward you, will I not send you word and let you know? But if my father is inclined to harm you, may the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if I do not let you know and send you away safely. May the Lord be with you as he has been with my father, but show me unfailing kindness, chesed, uh, the kindness of the Lord, the, the uh, Old Testament uh, cousin to agape, you know, God's steadfast love that doesn't change. But show me that kind of love, like the Lord, as long as I live, so that I may not be killed. And do not ever cut off your kindness from my family, not even when the Lord has cut off every one of David's enemies from the face of the earth. So Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord call David's enemies to account, and Jonathan and David... Uh, had, John, had David reaffirm his oath out of love for him because he loved him as he loved himself. And so we see that this kindness of the Lord, this, this set-apart kind of love, this steadfast love that never gives up, is the reason that between John, uh, Jonathan and David, it's a covenant kindness. They make a covenant that, that, is, that is like the Lord's love. And it's a promise kept, ladies and gentlemen, and, and that's the... That's the most splendid thing of all about this passage. We see, we see an act of salvation. We see this, this, uh, this act of grace that takes place, but it all hinges on this covenant made, this promise that's made, this, this loving covenant kindness. Um, I, I bought a, um, a Christmas uh, videotape, uh, Michael Card in Belfast. You know, I like Irishy type stuff. I like wor different kinds of world music and stuff. And I bought it, and uh, I have to tell you, <clears throat> Michael Carr can't sing very well. But uh, it was a kind of a neat thing, and there was a lot of instruments, and it was Irishy and all that stuff. And and uh, but he had one song on there called "The Name of the Promise Is Jesus." He is the name of the promise. <laughs> I mean, I mean, God's this this book. Is, is the history of God's redemption of his people for his own glory. I mean, cover to cover, you open it up, that's what, this, that's what the topic is. The history of the redemption of God's people for his own glory. The promise is made, and the promise has a name. Jesus. That's the promise. David poured out his kindness to this man for somebody's sake. Jonathan's sake. He made a promise, and he carried it out for Jonathan's sake. You know, one of the things that, uh, that just... I hate hearing the Lord's name thrown around, don't you? I hate going to the mall and hearing 12-year-olds go, oh my God, oh my God. And then they'll say, oh my God. And I want to say, you know what? He's not your God. He's my God, though. He's my Heavenly Father, and I treasure His name and hate to hear it thrown around. I hate to hear somebody say the name Jesus and, and, and his, his title, the Christ. I hate to hear that kicked around, don't you? And you know what I really hate? I hate, maybe more than anything, to hear somebody say, oh, for Christ's sake. Does that just get all over you to hear that? Because we pray for Christ's sake at the end of a prayer. We live for Christ's sake. And we are saved. You know, for Christ's sake. I mean, it's a treasured thing. God makes a promise. He keeps that promise, and the promise's name is Jesus. Which 
brings me to my final point, which is the vastness of the provisions that have been made for this guy Mephibosheth. You know, here he is, he's got nothing. And I, I love to I love to imagine <laughs> what it must have been like. Uh, you know, remember in Nehemiah, there's a cupbearer, and uh, <laughs> Nehemiah's the cupbearer, and he, and he goes to the king, and the king says, oh, Nehemiah, why you go, you look a little uh, downcast today? Uh, why, you know, it's not that the king was really concerned about his cupbearer. You know what, people, you don't, you're not depressed in front of a king. You know, a king is supposed to be so delightful to be around that, uh, you know, you laugh at his bad jokes, you lose at golf. I mean, everything around the king is just, king, I can't believe I'm with the king. It's just so wonderful to be with the king, which you wonder why so many of them uh, finally say, please worship me. You know, I think they get enough of that and they start thinking, you know, everybody's just so happy around me. It's amazing. And no one's ever downcast. Well, a king certainly doesn't want some wheelchair in his, in his courtroom. You know, he wants everybody to be handsome and a good representation of his kingdom and all that, you know? And uh, here we have Mephibosheth. The guys go to get him. He's probably living in some dump. And, uh, you know, you can just almost imagine. Uh, Mephibosheth, it's the king's guys. And he's thinking, oh, you know, my grandfather's trying to kill him. This is bad. The king's at my door. This is very bad. And, and uh, the guys take him and all that. And here he comes before the king. David says, uh, even stick a, an exclamation point here at the end of verse 6. David says, Mephibosheth! Your servant, he replied, don't be afraid, David says. That's not my Palm Pilot, is it? You know what? My own Palm Pilot went off in the middle of a message. <laughs> Piece of junk. I, but the audacity! Can't we give God one hour? Uh, gosh, that's horrible. All right, back to God's word. Um, you think about the abundance that is poured out in this guy. He's not just allowed to live or allowed to live somewhere near the king, uh, knowing that the, the king knows that he exists, but he's given all this land back. He's given all the land back that his, his uh, masters, uh, that his, his grandfather had. Not only that, you look at um, verse 10, um, you and your sons and your servants, Ziba, you remember Ziba, you know, you're the, you were uh, uh, the servant, you and your sons and servants are to farm the land for this guy, Mephibosheth, and bring the crops so that this guy will be provided for forever. And look at all the guys. Ziba had 15 sons. You know, they're probably married. That's 30 people. And 20 servants. They're probably married. That's another uh, 20 people. And they've got, you know, three kids each or probably more than that, you know. And uh, you've got all these humans and all this property and God pours out all this abundance, but that's not the end of it. He says, by the way, Ziba, uh, Mephibosheth, grandson of your master, will always eat at my table. I mean, God just doesn't do something a little bit nice, uh, David, but he pours out this great abundance. My mother-in-law, uh, uh, I have a great relationship with the old bird. I love her. And, uh, you know, at, at Thanksgiving, uh, she'll say, you want some more uh, turkey there, Mimi? She'll say, oh, I've had a copious sufficiency. You know, she's kind of a wordsmith, and uh, I just love that about her. And But that's her little statement. I've had a copious sufficiency, you know, a superfluous abundance. And that's the kind of blessing that God pours out. And that's the kind of thing that we see portrayed here. He gives him all this stuff. But the most wonderful thing 
is the fact that, he, that they get to eat at the king's table. Because, you know, what happens at a table? Um, you know, uh, people open up and they unwind and they talk and they laugh and please pass the salt and the mashed potatoes and the king spills gravy on his robe and everybody laughs and, and there's this intimacy that develops around this table. Mephibosheth will always eat at my table. Again, stated in verse 13, Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem because he always ate at the king's table. Crippled on both feet. But always involved in the inner circle, you know? I'd love to go to the White House one day and shake the president's hand for 20 seconds and then go back home, you know? But could you imagine eating at the president's table every single meal, laughing, talking, finding out his foibles and his fears and his, you know, what he wants to, you know, aspire to? I don't know. But, uh, I mean, uh, it, it would just be so marvelous to be that intimately connected. And, and here he is involved in that way. My brothers and sisters, what intimacy we have with our splendid God. We are invited into the very throne room. We get to know his thoughts. You know the thoughts he thinks toward us? We get to know that they're good and that they have an expected end. We get promises that he makes and he backs them up with the, the revelation of his own character. Uh, uh, we, we, are, we are with a personal God. We are sons and daughters of a personal God. You know, I think about Castaway. You've seen that movie. He's trapped on the island for four years. All he's had is a ball. He's talking to a ball for four years. What do we have? The throne room of God. I mean, it would be hard to be on an island for four years all alone. But wouldn't it be something if you knew the God that made the island, knew the God that controlled the waves around it, knew that you were never for a second out of his thoughts? That intimacy that we have a personal God because of a personal Savior who rescued us from personal wrath. Um, I've got two things and I'll, I'll be done. Uh, one of them is I, um, I take sporadic uh, seminary courses and uh, you know I have to write papers and uh, I was never really a good student uh, growing up and so here I am writing these papers and, and here's a little small one here but uh, I'll write papers and I'll get comments back from these guys that just you know, very intriguing, they'll write on there. Or they'll write stuff like, uh, you know, refreshing. Yeah, that's a pretty good comment. And they'll say, so different than all the massive papers I'm forced to read. I got that one time. That's, that's good. But then they give me a B minus. I don't do well. But, uh, but they like reading it. So, uh, but anyway... This is the end of one paper, and it's about, it's about Mephibosheth, and I, I call this little section The Sweetness of Grace, and it's about Mephibosheth, and I just want to read it to you. Well, things sure are different for the recipient of the king's grace. Once just a cripple under the confines of another, he is now exalted to a high place. Familiar with rags, he is instantly a wealthy man. He is still crippled, mind you. The consequences of the fall didn't disappear. But amazingly, he finds himself, not a bit on account of his own initiative or merit, seated at the table of the king as one of his own sons. This was no mere residency at the palace, but unhindered fellowship with the king himself. 
he was allowed to hear the words and will of the king who was himself pleased to bend an ear to his son of adoption. What a thing to consider that all of this had come about from a covenant kept. Here's my epilogue. As the mealtime laughter resounds in the dining hall, and as the recipient of grace passes the bounty of the king's table, the question must frequently come to mind. Why me? When I was growing up uh, in Chicago, we didn't go to Destin. We went to Wisconsin Dells. And it was just over uh, the, the border up there in Wisconsin. There were a lot of Indian tribes and stuff. And, and uh, you'd go up there and see teepees and Indians dressed up and dancing and stuff like that. And it was really kind of neat, like once. And uh, I remember we, I was a little kid and my younger sister and brother were with us and my, our family was there. And, and there was this, this tribal dance going on. And this guy had this big, huge, impressive headdress and this big thing going on his back. And there was a big crowd in a huge circle around this guy. And he was doing all these, these Amer you know, American Indian dances. And he finishes. And, uh, you know, we all kind of do that. And he reaches back and he plucks out a tail feather. And it made it look like it hurt. And everybody just kind of, oh, you know, made, pulled it out. And he comes walking toward our family. You know, he's looking, looking around. He's thinking, who can I give this feather to? And he walks toward our family. And he's coming closer and closer and closer. And he gives it to my little brother. And my little brother kept that feather his whole life. He still has that feather. It was this treasured thing he always had on this bulletin board. And I'm sure it's in some box in his attic somewhere. He's married with a kid now. But he's still got that feather. It's one of those weird things you just can't part with. And I know my whole childhood, I was thinking, why him? <laughs> and, and I know his childhood, he had to been thinking, I, why, out of all those people, why did that Indian guy give him the feather? You know, we look at our passage here. Mephibosheth, in verse 8, bowed down and said, What is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? That's his question. Why me? Why am I the recipient of these good things? Want to know the answer? It's a mystery. But it's an exquisite mystery. And it's a mystery that is grounded in a promise whose name is Jesus. Our Father, we love to see grace portrayed and your word is full of it. We love to see grace portrayed and our lives are full of it. My life is full of it, Lord, and we look around uh, at the people that we love, the people in this church, the people uh, in the sphere in which you have placed us, and we see your handiwork throughout. We see your fingerprints on all that you have made, and we marvel that you are a God who gives good gifts and abundant provisions. You will not give a snake when a child asks for a fish. We thank you, Lord, that uh, your good promises are backed by your own nature, that you cannot fail on a promise that you have made. We thank you, Lord, that uh, you, you 
cause grace to be amazing uh, by your holiness. And uh, we thank you, O oh God, that you have seen fit to save uh, worms trapped, dead dogs cowering, of people who were your enemies jettisoned from you, and yet you still loved. Apply your word to our hearts, O oh God. Cause us to increase in our love for you, for we pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Thanks, y'all.